winners in programmatic M&A don't incubate. They define a business. They want to actually commit capital to scale that will make them the number one, two, or three player, not number 10. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Senior Partner Emeritus Robert Ulaner. He joins us today to discuss how a programmatic approach to mergers and acquisitions has, over many years, proven to be the most successful deal-making strategy. He's joined today by partner Liz Wall, and together they will explain what programmatic M&A is, why it works, and how best to do it. Robert co-led our firm's strategy and corporate finance practice until his retirement this summer, and he joins us from San Francisco. Liz is based in our New York office and leads our work globally on M&A capability building and programmatic M&A strategy. Liz, Robert, welcome. Robert, let me start with a question for you. Your research into M&A and corporate performance has been going on for more than 12 years. Can you first explain what that research involved and what motivated you to start it? Well, good morning. Uh, at least it's morning where I am in California. What we do is we study the global 2000. And those are the 2000 largest public companies that traded in the previous decade. So in this case, we're looking at the prior decade, 2010 to 20. A lot of M&A value creation research that we conducted historically, as well as academics and banks, have really centered on a couple things which we would, which basically missed a big part of M&A activity, and we sought out to capture it. So just to give you a feel, the Global 2000 alone in the last 10 years did almost $7 trillion of M&A, $7 trillion. And that, that was across 21,000 deals. And most research, however, looked at announcement effects, uh, that is the performance of a deal upon announcement, uh, as well as looked at synergy capture and a number of things that really restricted the sample to the large deals. The problem is 70% of deal activity, roughly $5 trillion, are deals too small to measure one at a time. And so we turned the question to what kinds of M&A programs drove long-term value creation, not whether individual deals created value. Understood. So what factors in these M&A programs did you study? Um, the two variables that define an M&A program are actually pretty straightforward. One is the number of deals that you do. In other words, it's a proxy for M&A capability building. So the first metric is the number of deals you do per year. And the second metric is the amount of M&A acquired. When we did our research, we found that those two variables differentiated performance over the long term. And we came up with four segments. The first is we answered the perennial question of what's a large deal. And regardless of sector and size of firm, a large deal actually is a relative metric. And the magic number time and time again is if you do a deal that's over 30% of your market cap, again, a proxy for relative size, that triggers a transformative event that is that, re, that literally over the long period will make or break the performance of the company. Even if you've got practice doing smaller deals, that's actually not correlated. Small deals build different capabilities, but that large deal event really drives the outcome. The second and probably most important segment is what we term programmatic M&A. Many of you have heard the term serial M&A, 
programmatic M&A is a little different. Uh, it's similar in terms of lots of deals. Uh, the median is 3.6 per year for the sample, but, you'll, but many companies do 5, 10, 15 deals per year in this segment. And they truly have applied M&A to materially add market cap, but in multiple deal acquisitions to build businesses, most, most generally. The other two segments, selective and organic, do dominate the global 2000 as strategies, but essentially they are either very opportunistic on occasional deals, uh, reacting to business unit consolidation, or organic players simply have not built M&A capability and are in many cases doing the right thing, which is riding their growth. And so what was the overriding conclusion when you compare these four different deal segments or approaches? The first thing we looked at before we looked at value creation is just looked at survivorship. And again, for the Global 2000, we took a look at a simple metric, which is the top 100 companies that actually started in the Global 2000. Those about 60, 59 that survived, most of those have built programmatic M&A capability. In other words, a standing team and an approach to actually build businesses. Those that neglected to build M&A capability were less likely to be able to reshape their, their portfolio. And therefore survive. But uh, aside from simply surviving, how did you measure the, the sort of relative performance of the companies that were using these different deal approaches? And, and how did programmatic M&A stack up? Um, this is excess TRS. So if you've heard a term called alpha, that's approximately what we have here. We said, look, what is the performance of companies relative to their peer benchmark? So if you're an oil and gas company, you'd be compared to oil and gas, a software company compared to software index and so on. The reason why that's important is that we wanted to wash out over the 10 years, the cyclicality and performance of an industry and really go after the question that we were after, which is what really affected peer performance. And so, again, what you see is a couple interesting things. The median excess return, and also, by the way, the mean and standard error around uh, the excess returns for programmatic, all are north of zero. In fact, 2%, 2.1% excess returns over 10 years means that they outperform their peer group by at least 20% TRS. The other segments all were roughly negative, and large deal this time came out zero since we were able to move beyond the tech collapse in 2006. But nevertheless, you, in many boards and many companies, the concept of doing M&A is perceived as risky. And what we want to point out here is organic strategies, doing no M&A at all, has the largest standard deviation and, in fact, is the riskiest. That's really interesting. So doing no M&A um, is actually the riskiest approach. And why would that be the case? Why is that true? As you become larger and larger, the likelihood that over 10-year periods, you can pretty much commit capital at scale to move with your industry or diversify your portfolio is fairly low. And so if you do have a tailwind, you should write it. But over long periods of time, Companies that built M&A capability actually have less risky portfolios since they're able to be agile and adapt. It's a consistent lesson that M&A capability building wins the day. Uh, the last point that I'd like to make is practice makes perfect. So as I said earlier, 
uh, the median number of deals done in that programmatic M&A segment is about 3.6. But what is really striking is as companies do more than five deals on average per year, 50 or more over the decade, their performance is significantly better, as well as at lower risk. Did you have a question? Yeah, thank you. So lower risk and better performance sounds pretty good. But I, I just wanted to ask you if you've seen any scenarios where perhaps there was a large deal that was almost like an anchor. Uh, and then that's the precursor to doing a bunch of smaller deals. And and how would that fall into the four different segments that you described earlier? Yeah, so I think a lot of what we're seeing, obviously, is digital M&A, building new businesses. Historically, a large deal in absolute terms is certainly a strategy to build an anchor and then build around it. Those deals were large, but they weren't transformative in the sense that they weren't 30% of market cap or certainly 30% of revenue and didn't trigger. And that's really what the large deal relative metric tells us, not absolute, that you don't want to triggering a transformation event that runs the whole company is what gets you in the large deal bucket. Got it. And so I have another question around resource allocation or reallocation. What role does programmatic M&A play in helping almost to force these resource reallocation decisions? So a lot of what we're saying is M&A can't be opportunistic. It's got to be, we're going to build a business and build a plan. But the resource reallocation, once you actually realize what it takes to win in certain new segments... You can't commit capital and build capability typically fast enough without materially acquiring additional capability, almost by definition. And the last thing I'll say is programmatic winners in programmatic M&A don't incubate. They define a business. They want to actually commit capital to scale that will make them the number one, two, or three player, not number 10. Thanks, Robert. Um, Liz, quick question for you. I understand that in addition to the research that Robert just covered, you also looked at the best practices that these programmatic acquirers utilize to make the most of their acquisitions and, and this programmatic approach. Can you take us through some of the most important ones? So um, in addition to our quantitative research that Robert just covered, we've also spent a fair bit of time looking at the companies in the Global 2000 to figure out what are the best practices that they that these programmatic acquirers use to drive these results? And we've kind of coined these the three C's, competitive advantage, conviction, capacity. And so the first C here, competitive advantage, what does this mean? So winning programmatic acquirers are far more likely to create what we call an M&A blueprint or an M&A roadmap that very, very specifically states where and how M&A will contribute to corporate strategy. And so let me give you first an example of what this is not. This is not a European company saying we're going to use M&A to enter into North America. It's far too broad and and not quite actionable. But what what good versions of an M&A blueprint or a really well-defined M&A theme look like are we're a healthcare company that um, who realized via COVID-19 that we better get our act together on telehealth. So we are going to use M&A to acquire and scale telehealth capabilities. Or we're a rideshare company and we are going to use M&A to acquire the tech platform we need to launch a food delivery business on top of this um, rideshare business that we already have. So it's very specific. 
And, and I would say the caveat here is that even for the most adept programmatic acquirers, um, they at most can handle two, maybe three M&A themes at any given time. So if your current list of M&A themes is six, seven, or 10 or 12 uh, themes long, I'd really urge you to go back and say, what are the top two or three that you can really focus on over the next two to three years and, and move the needle in terms of your corporate strategy? So if we keep going to the next C, um, which is conviction. Um, and so what, what we mean by conviction here in this context is that your executive team, your, your BU leaders, your board, they're aligned to those top two M&A themes, be it you know, the telehealth theme I mentioned or the food delivery theme, and that they're primed to execute. And this includes that they're primed to allocate the capital needed to execute against these themes. And so a good test to know if you're, if you're kind of at the bar on conviction is go back to your next executive team meeting and go around the table and ask, what are, the, what are our top two M&A themes right now that we need to deliver our corporate strategy and see what your, your peers, what your colleagues say? Are they all saying, you know, telehealth and food delivery? Um, or are you getting a laundry list of things people kind of thought up on their ride into the office that morning? That'll give you a really good sense of where you fall on this one. Um, and then the other useful tool here that I like to, to mention is that nothing helps build conviction better than putting, you know, pencil to, to paper, even if it's just a scratch pad, and penciling out what the business case looks like for that M&A theme, agnostic of any given target, right? But what are the growth expectations that you need to succeed in one of these themes? What are the synergies? Just order of magnitude, what would they need to be to make this deal kind of work or a series of deal, deals work? And then again, what is the capital that you would need? both from a, an acquisition capital standpoint, but then from above and beyond the acquisition price, what would you need to actually unlock the full capability of that asset, which could involve some pretty substantial capital allocation above and beyond acquisition price. Great. Thank you, Liz. Um, one question on this, I would think downturns might have a negative impact on the results of programmatic acquirers and, and their convictions. Or do you find that programmatic acquirers stick to their convictions even through economic crises? And how do they perform? So programmatic acquirers still perform the best and probably even more significantly with less risk than other M&A types. And when we looked at these actual companies within the sample, we believe it really is because they had their M&A blueprint quite clearly defined and they did the work to create conviction such that when a downturn did occur, they were not having so many second second thoughts or or hesitancy to actually go ahead with the strategy. And you can see it actually paid off quite nicely. Let's talk about that final C. What did what did you mean by that in the context of MA best practices? Um, capacity means a bunch of different things in this context. I think the first two kind of pretty obvious. So from a cash perspective, do you have the capacity to actually implement? a given M&A theme? What about from a capital structure standpoint? But I think most important here is actually um, operational capacity. Does your team, and by team, I mean both your M&A or corporate development team, but also the business leader who owns this M&A strategy, do they have the capacity and the capabilities that you actually need to integrate one of these assets or a series of these assets? And you have to remember with, with programmatic M&A, we're not just simply talking about 
ripping out SGNA and, you know, letting the thing flourish. It often involves coming up with a new product or entering a new market or using this acquisition as a launch pad for a new capability that's going to then transform the core of your business. And so the amount of, you know, thought and energy um, and, and capacity and capability that it takes to do this is actually really quite high. Um, and, and making sure that you're prepared for that as you're building your conviction is a pretty big deal. So that makes sense. And, you know, earlier, Liz, Robert mentioned that programmatic M&A is different than serial M&A. Can you just clarify that difference for us? What, what makes an M&A strategy programmatic rather than serial? So programmatic M&A is not serial M&A. It's not doing a quota of deals in a given period of time. It's really about building a new business, a new capability uh, through a series of deals, or maybe it's through a series of deals plus some organic business builds that you coupled with these deals to really create something new and bigger that you couldn't have just acquired single-handedly. And so if you have the competitive advantage in terms of your M&A blueprint, the conviction in terms of everyone rowing in the same direction and being willing to make these bets, even in tricky times. Um, and then the capacity that you've really freed up the appropriate folks on your teams to do this. Um, we think this, these are the three key ingredients to achieving some of those quantitative results that Robert shared earlier. Okay. Thank you. Um, one more question for you, Liz, and it's about putting what you're sharing, what you and Robert are sharing today into action. It's the Monday morning question. How do you embark on a programmatic M&A approach? What are some of the first steps that you take? And is there some kind of se- a particular sequence that one follows in implementing a programmatic M&A approach? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's a lot to uh, take on. And the first and foremost is taking a very critical look at your enterprise corporate strategy, but then kind of mashing that up against what are the market forces and market trends that are currently impacting your industry or sector or the sector that you're looking at entering via programmatic M&A and distilling down from what is probably quite a long list of potential M&A uh, theme opportunities into what are the one, two, maybe three that you're going to take take a look at. From there, and I think this is a, a very critical part. I mean, we didn't focus on it as much today, but we would go into what we call a proactive deal sourcing, which is not saying, oh, what are the, you know, what are the top three hottest assets that are for sale in the market? Not at all. What are the assets that currently exist, um, regardless of whether or not they're for sale? How do we actually describe our vision to these companies and get them excited about um, either being acquired or partnering with us to to do that vision? I think those those first two steps go hand in hand. At that that point, then you're into a pretty typical deal funnel of of diligence, um, negotiation, and integration, which I won't, which I won't go into deeply. Um, but if you can nail the front end of this, your the odds that you are more successful later on in the funnel really increase dramatically. Okay, so my next question is related to how to structure and staff an M&A team, a programmatic M&A team. We've talked about the three C's, but how do you work with business leaders to turn this into an ongoing capability? Robert, let's come back to you on this one. Yeah, I, I can take that. Um, I think that one thing that wins the day in pro- with programmatic acquires is concentrating caseload experience around a central team to get started that actually doesn't get bifurcated as 
little deals are the purview of the business units. Big deals are, you know, corporate events. Little deals are great to build caseload experience on the team. And it also gives you practice in driving uh, real M&A capability building. So number one is really, really find a, you're much better off having a team to bootstrap this that's building that caseload experience. And where the partnership with the business comes in is your strategy and corporate development team is working to help the business build what Liz was describing as the business case and blueprint and really support that proactive sourcing motion where the business actually has a solid business plan, identifies the capabilities they need, and corporate development helps streamline a process where they're out having conversations, creating opportunity, but then they can have the back end of actually executing a deal professionally. Uh, Just as a sidebar, one of the great successes of a programmatic acquirer is they don't run it like a procurement process. They run every deal like a partnership with a business leader out there talking and creating deal flow. And we actually have run for clients satisfaction surveys. And it's remarkable how there are those targets that after they've gone through the process are um, beaten down and others are motivated. And obviously that has a huge uh, drive towards value creation. Thank you. So once you've got the management team aligned and you're taking this partnership approach with your targets and business units, you still need to have some tools in place to make this work, right? And it seems like this is a really long-term commitment that you're making. So are there any supporting tools that you can recommend that you use to tie the M&A program to the corporate strategy? Having a well-defined, simple stage gate process that makes sure that you don't get bogged down. And the simple stage gates are simply a strategy approval that says, yep, this deal's on strategy. Second stage gate is typically approval to negotiate, which means reach out and begin diligence. And then the third is obviously deal approval. The biggest mistake is that first milestone often is a meeting with delegates of, as opposed to the meeting of the senior people that have the authority and position power and, frankly, the ability to say no. And too many deals tend to say, well, what could hurt? We could just burn a lot of calories taking a look at it, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take a look later on the back end. And that is where you get a lot of churn and focus dissipate. So I'll just add that one tool uh, to the basket, which is critical for driving efficiency. Okay. Um, so one final question. There's been a lot of private equity money coming into the markets. How do you help your clients maintain a programmatic approach or how do you, how does one maintain a programmatic approach when there's a large influx of outside capital that can have the effect of bidding up prices? The biggest success factor is proactive sourcing where you're creating your own deal flow. You're not necessarily going to keep a deal out of play, but if you actually have a business case, odds are the deal flow doesn't match with the capabilities you need. You as a strategic, not private equity, have a value proposition, which is different than just writing a big check. You have shares, so you can share in the value creation with a target, as well as um, you actually can drive real synergies around that. But creating your own deal flow is key. Secondly, private private equity is looking at a different lens and have a very different value prop. 
you need to be able to pencil it out. I think if on with the business case that I was mentioning earlier, you either can pencil it out at these at particularly in some of these sectors, these crazy valuations right now, or you can't. Um, in which case, uh, I would say you probably ought to reconsider that first C of competitive advantage. Liz, Robert, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And thank you also to all of our listeners. We'll share a transcript of this conversation on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR. And that's where you can also easily explore our library of more than 80 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. And finally, if you'd like to automatically receive our insights on strategy and corporate finance, we encourage you to sign up for email alerts at the bottom of our podcast collection page, again on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, or you can follow us on Twitter at mckstrategy and connect with us on our McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.